Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 55. This week, we're staying across the pond with another guest based out of London. More on that in a moment. But first, I wanted to talk about the idea that there is no demo. Now, this is inspired by my conversation this week, but with a little spin. My guest and I chat a bit about engineering for songwriting sessions and how you've got to be ready for anything because it may just be that magic moment. You've got to record the vocals as if they're the final, because let's be honest, they probably will be. You've got to do the rough mix like it's the final, because the A&R is going to hear it. Everything you do, you've got to do like it's the final version of the song. Well, I want to go one up on that whole idea. There is no demo for your career or for your life. Everything you're doing every day is going to make it into the final. Boom. Mic drop. End of the intro. Just kidding. I'll elaborate. Uh, I hope. Honestly, though, that sentence in itself should be enough to potentially put you into a tailspin of regret and energize you to change the way you do everything moving forward. It kind of did for me when I was writing it. Okay, so first off, the regrets. You can't have regrets. Every project you've put out in the world, every interaction you've had, and every decision you've made up until this point, you did using the best information you had at the time, and with the skill set you had developed up until that point. It was the best you could do. Everybody learns as they go. Nobody was born perfect. So pull yourself out of the tailspin, and let's talk about moving forward now. You've only got one life. Super cheesy, I know. But it's true. You might have one career in it, maybe you'll have two or three, but you're only going to go on the full ride one time. So you better be prepared to put your best foot forward at all times. Let's take a second and let's think about some of the things you hear on sessions fairly often these days. We'll fix it in the mix. Eh, this is just the demo. I'll re-sing it later. You get some clumsy playing on the guitar followed by, you know, something like that. We'll figure it out. If you take those things out of the context of some people writing a song in a room and you slap the sentiment of them onto your career or living your life, I mean, it's disturbing. You would never do that. There is no demo. You will only be in that room creating whatever version of the song you end up creating one time. You'll only send it off to the A&R for the first time one time. And it'll only get released one time. Okay, so let's leave that example behind for a minute, and we'll hit a few more just to hammer it home. You're only going to go and do that job interview or pitch your idea to that person one time. You're only going to send the first mix off to a new client one time. Your daughter's only going to be two years old one time. If you're strolling through your career like there's a demo or a warm-up round, then I guarantee that you'll probably be pretty disappointed with the end result. 
See, work ethic and first impressions matter. We've all been in the studio with a session singer that sang the demo like it was her own record, or the producer who worked like the song was getting released in a few hours, or the engineer that was as attentive and as prepared as if it was a high-pressure orchestra session. And we all remembered those people. You probably told your other collaborators about them, or you made sure you got their contact info before you left. None of those people were making a demo. Isn't that the person you want to be? If you're doing life like there's no demo, then you will for sure never have any regrets. You're going to look back on your career and your life, and you're going to know that you always showed up. Remember, everything you're doing, you're only doing once. All the things you did and everything you're about to do, they're all going to make it into the final. Today's guest is London-based mixer and mastering engineer Manon Grandjean. Manon has spent much of her time lately working with UK chart-topping grime and hip-hop artists such as Stormzy, Dave, Fredo, and AJ Tracy. Some of her other credits include London Grammar, Craig David, Birdie, and Nao. In 2017, she was named Breakthrough Engineer of the Year by the Music Producers Guild, and then followed that with Recording Engineer of the Year in 2018. So super excited to talk all things mixing, mastering, and career. So welcome to the show, Manon Grandjean. Hey, Manon, how are you? Hey, Travis, I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I'm glad we can make it work. It's always tough, you know, U.S. to Europe or U.S. to somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, how's, how's your day? Are you um, mostly through your day? Yeah, I mean, my day's been fine. Just been working from home today because I had a like a couple of a zoom thing so i just wanted to i've got a nice setup at home as well so i can um i mean we can get into that a bit later but because of when i started sort of fully mixing during lockdown i sort of really set up my sort of spare room really nicely and then now i'm really comfortable there and it's nice i've got like a few things that i sort of doubled up between my house and my studio so i can easily sort of you know transfer things back and forth and 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 work really really comfortably in both places so so That's yeah awesome. been just working today and yeah and having a lovely chat nice. <laughs> awesome are you spending more time at home now or is it more back into the studio work out over there what's it what's the vibe going like over there now i mean for a while it's been I mean, the studio where I am, now, I am at now, they didn't close during lockdowns anyway. They were they remained open. So, but at the beginning of last year of 2020, I didn't have a studio because I just I just finished working with a producer who had his own place. Ah, uh, okay. And I sort of went back to sort of freelancing, mixing full time, and I didn't really have a place, a studio yet. So I set up my house and then lockdown happened. So I've carried on working from home. And then in July last year, I set up in, in a sort of proper studio cool. and been sort of now is sort of back like sort of 50, 50 or, or if I'm feeling, you know, if I have a lot of people coming into the studio attending sessions, then I'll spend more time in the studio. And if I'm a bit too tired, I just, work from home <laughs> <laughs> why, why you know, not right <laughs> it's great. flexible yeah it's great uh i was doing some reading and and uh checking out some of your your other interviews that i've seen and i think it's we've had very different careers but i think we have a lot of parallels so i'm actually excited to to chat because i think Ooh, we've nice, done a lot yeah. of similar things 
So generally, we just start from the beginning. Like, how'd you get into music? How'd you end up in London engineering? So I was trained on classical guitar when I was sort of a child and teenager. And my family was quite musical. I think I did eight years of classical guitar and I did harp and piano. And so I was really into music from sort of an early age. And at 18, I did a, an internship in a studio in South of France. And I loved, I loved it so much. And I didn't really know this, this was the occasion to sort of discover what a sound engineer does. And because there's, you know, if you look at the time online and there wasn't it, and it wasn't a job that was sort of fully explained and there wasn't much out there. There is so much out there now, but at the time, sort of 20, almost 20 years ago, there wasn't. <laughs> Um, there wasn't as much out there. So I went into that studio and loved it so much. And I was like, this is what I want to do because I've always been also a lot into science. So it was like the perfect sort of combination of music and science together. I studied physics in South of France and then I did a sound engineering course at uni after that. And then at the end of it, I had to do another internship and I, I came to London to do that. And I never left. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you, do you have a physics degree? Yes, I do. That's epic. I love that. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm using it much these days, but you know, it's still in the back pocket. Was that like a potential fallback doing that and you were always going to chase music or how did you end up not really pursuing what you got a degree in? The only thing is in France, it, for the, the university I wanted to do, you needed to have a degree to enter it first. So so I did that degree, you know, to, to be able to get in into that degree because it was um you couldn't enter at eighteen. You had you had to have a degree. So do two more years of study and then and then apply. Oh, okay. um, so that All was right. that was the reason behind it. Cool. That's awesome. So London, <laughs> you're, where'd you, you started interning in like a larger studio or it was a smaller one? It was actually quite big. It's, um, I mean, it's still there. It's called Livingston Studio. It's in, um, in Woodgreen in North London for people who, who, who know London. Um, it's in an old chapel or church. So a nice. really cool building. And there was one, there was two, two studios and like an upstairs sort of lounge and kitchen and a few things, but really cool. I think when I started, it was like a big SSL in the Studio One and then an AMEC desk in the second in Studio Two. So quite a fairly, not a huge studio, but a really, really nice studio. And a lot, lot of stuff has been recorded there over the years. Like, it, well, I think it opened in 1970, in the 70s. So, so quite a lot of big big like bands and, and stuff recorded there. So it was a great, great sort of first step in. And yeah, I, lo I loved it there. And so I did my internship and then at the end they offered me a job as an assistant slash runner kind of, of course, position. Right. And <laughs> and because they already had, obviously they already had assistants and, and house engineers. So I, you know, stayed there and see, you know, we'll see what happened and, and you know, you work hard and you sort of build up your your skills and build up your contacts. And I, I started looking for other other studios to freelance in. And I found this other studio called State of the Art Studio, which, is, which was in 
uh, in Richmond in southwest London. And it was, again, it was only one main studio, but very sort of vintage orientated. So they had an, an old uh, TG12345 desk, oh, nice. uh, EMI desk, uh, a lot like Fairchild and Pultex and a lot of great old mics and obviously tape machines. And it was like such a, such a great studio and a really big live room as well. Cool. So I started working there and, and I stayed there for five years. I was the sort of main, because there was only one studio, I was sort of the main engineer there or, or assistant if if um, there wasn't an engineer coming in for the session. So I was sort of like the main person there for that time. Nice. So you were you were still at Livingston as like a runner assistant, but you had spare time. So you were looking for freelancing work and that's how you ended up at, at State yeah. of the Arc? Yeah, I mean, the at Livingston, it was a freelance. After my internship, it was on a freelance basis. So, okay. um, I wasn't I wasn't like full time or anything. It was just like when they needed because there was uh, assistance already there. It goes sort of in a like a pecking order, if you want. Yeah, so you're the totally. latest one to come in. Yeah. So you you know you're not getting all the sessions. Obviously, they go through. You know, they give work today to their sort of order assistants and. So I didn't have enough work. So that's that's why I, I sort of like started looking to other places to go because I needed to work more. Right. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I was I was curious whether whether you were quote unquote cheating on, on that studio and trying to find some oh, no, more no, engineering no, no. gigs or <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I mean it's it's really like now that even when I started, I think all the assistants and the engineers, even though they were working primarily in Livingston they were still freelancers because there wasn't, I think the sort of notion of in-house employed assistants or engineers, it doesn't exist anymore except perhaps in Abbey Road. But that's that's the only case. So they actually say to you, yeah, of course, go, like get as much work as you can outside of that because otherwise you can't sustain a living. Like prices in London are very high and... You, you need to, to be able to to work on, to, to be able to make a living. You, you need to have a few studios that you sort of rotate onto. That's cool. Yeah, I came from uh, an on-staff situation at Capital that obviously is a sister studio to Abbey Road. But mm -hmm. um, I think the, the whole freelance thing, I think, is less common over here. You know, everybody seems to be on staff to a certain extent. But I think for the studios, it's better because then you've got your your workers that you know are great also wandering around town in the end it, i feel like it probably drives you know clients all over i think i i, I think that's mm. a cool a cool um, approach to it which is not the los angeles way in in any way i dig that that's cool there's a lot of opportunity there if you hear um, little like scratches and noises is my cat running <laughs> around i think he's having a bit of is this time of day that he's like <laughs> Freaking crazy. out and running, yeah, going crazy. So he's gonna be climbing that. on those records behind you on the wall. <laughs> no, you won't. You won't. It might be on top here, just like passing, passing by. Perfect. Um, um, yeah, here you go. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, so, uh, okay, so you're freelancing around doing studios. What was the next big moment for you, or, or turning point for you? So, so while I was at State of the Arc, I also was freelancing after a couple of years when I was a bit sort of more established. I also started freelancing at Rack Studio, which is 
quite a well-known studio yeah. in, in London. It's close to Abbey Road, actually. It's in the same neighbourhood. That's a really big studio. I think it's, yeah, four studios. So the studio one is huge. You can do, like, strings. And so I was working over those three studios. And at Rack, I met a producer called Fraser T. Smith. He's been, like, doing... Before I met him, he was doing a band. He was producing bands. Also, quite, it was quite... Um, known in the sort of grime rapper urban industry so we met on on the session there and um, he had an engineer at the time so I was only assisting on the session and um, his engineer contacted me a few weeks later to do sessions at his own studio in Fulham in London as well and so I was like oh all right cool great and um, so I did a few sessions with, with him as a freelance engineer and he offered me a permanent job working for him as an engineer nice so that was the sort of the only time where I was actually like you said like you would say on staff with someone so so from then on I stopped working in the other places right because I didn't have time anyway <laughs> I mean it was a full it was a full-time job like uh, you know so that's I think that's that was like a big turning point, I think, for me to to go from sort of freelance engineer, but also I was still doing a lot of assisting to like a full-on engineering, you know, take making decisions on, you know, records and, and also recording stuff from the beginning yeah. on writing sessions and carrying them on until the end, until the mastering stage so that didn't obviously happen when i started it just sort of evolved because we worked together for five years so it sort of it started as a engineering gig and then as we sort of you know he trusted me more with uh his songs and and with his production then i developed and he was he's a really great mixer so he sort of taught me a lot in about mixing and and i sort of took that on and, and carried on into that, mixing a lot of the records that we did together and mastering some of them as well. Very cool. Yeah, that this is like where I feel like our 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 uh, experiences have been similar. I, I went to work for somebody, I left Capital, I went to work for a, a producer and it was kind of the same thing. It was, here's a new task, here's a new task. Can you do this? Oh, you can do that. Okay, what about this? Try to do that, can you do that? And you kind of like work your way up to just doing everything. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, coming from like the freelance world where, you know, you were balancing assisting and then grabbing engineering gigs, did you feel like you had started to like develop your sound or your workflow as an engineer? Or did that like really come once you had this multi-year collaboration with, with Frazier? I think it's, it's really, it's really difficult when you, especially nowadays that the studios, the, 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 the session in commercial studios are shorter and shorter. Oh yeah. Because of <laughs> budgets and you know, it's so it's really difficult to sort of put like really your stamp on on sounds because sometimes you would have like a day where the, you know the, they they want to do like a band wants to do drums and you're doing five or six songs in a day. Mm -hmm. So you actually come in in the morning, set up do like a good drum sound, but you don't really have that time to experiment and and be crazy and know about the record and 
and everything. So I feel like now, unless you spend that time with the artist in the studio, like, you know, a couple of weeks or a month or something, then it's really difficult to to get your own, you know, sound. And I feel like I was very much in that in that sort of lane when I was freelancing. It's just, okay, well, today it's strings. Okay, well, set up for strings. Yeah. And you get a really nice string sounds and, you know, record it well and they can take it, you know, take it home or, or in another place and, and carry on working. Okay, next day is, okay, two days of drums, do that. And, and because the budgets are a bit reduced and stuff like it's so much crammed in into the day that, you know, there's, there's a lot that has to be recorded. So I feel like the time for experimenting and getting interesting sounds and getting really into the records are kind of not really like this anymore. Yeah. So, so really the getting our own sound was when I started working with Fraser because he he also, you know, has his, his sound and his, you know, the way he works and and what, you know, instruments he uses. So he definitely has a sound. And together we sort of also um, looked at how we wanted this to be recorded and how, you know, experiment. And we had a bit more time yeah. because we were there, you know, every day and not every day there was an artist in, so there was days where it was just the two of us working on production and working on Sonics. And so I feel like that came, that really sort of developed with him and and also knowing what works in when we were doing sessions, working from a template with, you know, things that we know are working for us and we know sort of we get to the sound that we want quicker and, and all these things sort of, gets sort of set into into your into your way of working yeah so it definitely definitely came when when working with him for sure if you're enjoying this episode then please consider pulling your phone out tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it obviously it would be huge for me but it could be even more game-changing for that person you just never know what can inspire or help someone else out I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Yeah, well, I want to talk about this a little bit more. Um, because mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. There's so many jobs that I've done. A lot of the, you know, budgets are smaller. It's like, hey, we're going to do 12 songs. We've got two days booked. You know, I'm starting to get to the point where I want to, I haven't encountered another one of these since I've decided this, but I want to tell people like, that's a bad idea. Like you, we just can't do that because it becomes, it becomes just like survival and capture mode sometimes when the, and even from the performance side, there's always mm. a sacrifice somewhere. There's always like the one piano part we should have done one more take of or the drum groove wasn't quite right, but we had to move on because we had two more songs mm-hmm. and only two more hours. And so I just like bands and artists just really, I know that you want to save the money and you want to, you still want to go in the studio, but like, don't do five songs, just do the the two that you really mm-hmm. know are the best ones. And in the end, it's going to save you money and like editing and like long mixes. It's just going to be so, so much better. <laughs> You know? I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, this, 
I've, and I've seen it at the beginning when still there was a bit more budget and people were get, staying longer in studio. So I've seen it, the, you know, that, that going on. But then as, you know, the, the more I sort of went on to, you know, with the years passed and a lot of studio closed down and, you know, I, I, I saw it, like sessions being shorter and shorter. And yeah. I remember at the beginning with bands, I said of the up, sometimes they were in there for two months. And it was great. And we were going to the pub for dinner. And, you know, yeah. it was like, it was like a really great sort of vibe. And then towards the end, when I was freelancing, it was just like, yeah, maximum two, three days of sessions. And then that was it, even in big studios. So I think there's very few artists nowadays that, that still are booking big studio, big commercial studios for that amount of time, like months. You know, I think it's, is really not the norm anymore. No, no, not not at all. And you know, it, I think, like you were saying, you're you're just trying to capture, you know, drum sounds that will work and string song sounds that will work or wh whatever it is. Like you're delaying decisions too, and then it ends up like even as a mixer, you get affected by these smaller budgets because things haven't been like sonically shaped into, you know, what the producer and the artist really think they should be. They were just captured because mm -hmm. you had four hours. And you're like, these strings sound great. Do they fit in the song? I don't know, but they sound great. Lay it down next song. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, totally. But uh, can we talk some more about like building a, a workflow? You mentioned when you're working with Fraser that you guys had time to kind of learn how to get to the sounds that you liked and the cool stuff that you were trying to do faster. Do you have any thoughts for engineers that are kind of trying to find that faster workflow to the dope sound that they are trying to get out of their head? Absolutely. I think when I, when, when I was engineering before working with him, I didn't really, as an engineer, when I was sort of going into sessions, I, I would always would start on a blank session and be like, okay, what we're we doing today, we're doing this. And it's really when, when we started working together that I realized, you know, there's things that we, when when we mixing the songs that we always put on certain elements and there's chains that we like and there's also you know my from from mic as well from the recording like microphones and pre's and what EQ is going through what compressors is going through so in his studio as opposed to a commercial studio everything was already fully set up which I think is quite the the way that producers nowadays work they have their own setup with everything plumbed in. So basically mm -hmm. you just, you know, put yourself on input on the track and then it's already like everything is already there. I would never really touch the patch bay that much or so everything was always set up for him to be able to bounce around. He had quite a big room. So we had like pianos and guitars and, and you could play a lot of things as well. So he had his programming station on another computer and like a lot of keyboards around and and we had the drum kit and yeah piano and guitars and so he would jump from things and I would just you know whatever he was doing I was just uh put tracks in on input and and um and record that and and then sort of mix mix that along as we were building things and when there were a lot of people coming in so he was producing but maybe there was a couple of other musicians with him in the room so they will all play live as well. And so it was a really cool and efficient way to work. And I've, he's very, 
although he's very technical, he's also very creative. And I feel like he wanted to have everything available and sounding great from where you touched it, when you touched it and not be, be sort of spending a half hour finding a sound because when he's writing and producing, he's, he's just lose his momentum and his creativity. So, um, so we actually worked, uh, you know, together on chains and, and things like that. And, and, you know, we had like a, obviously I had a recording template and I realized the power that that has, because when, when we were doing those really quite high pressure sort of pop sessions where you have an artist coming in, they're writing a song, da, 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 and at the end of the day, they want to lay vocals because we always wanted to make sure that we have a properly done vocals and backing vocals on the day of the writing. Oh, yeah. Because now it's like, oh, well, the demo vocal is actually 90% of the time the vocal that will get used on the final record. So we said there's no none of that SM7 in the room half half up into their nose you just <laughs> just go in the booth on the on the proper mic and record it properly yeah and they were always like more than happy to, to do so and we always had like a great but you have to have speed and in pop sessions there's a lot of vocals 100 oh, yeah. tracks of bvs and and if you don't have a template if if you don't have your your auto tunes on your compressors, your buses, your effects, sort of like sort of ready to go. It's it's just you can't play anything at the end of the, of the day. And we wanted to buy, you know, the 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 artist records vocals and he comes out of the room. I usually would get maybe fifteen minutes or so or half an hour to comp and and do like layers and everything and then do a, a do a mix while they have a chat and then play that back. And everyone's happy. Everyone is excited about it, and 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 everyone was like, "Wow, this sounds like a like a record." At the end of the day, yeah. So that's that's the power of of you know template and knowing, obviously knowing your your workflow and knowing your you know what you you know your recording and and everything. But it's by by having that ready and set that's that's so powerful for me anyway. Yeah, well, I. I agree completely. You're, I'm having flashbacks to my pop songwriting session days. I mean, it's just like, you know, once somebody gets on the mic and they're like, I, give me a delay, give me a quarter note delay. It's like, if you don't have the send made on the track and mm. it, like the aux, like the fact that I'm going to stop playback to make this quarter note delay for you is like yeah. such a vibe kill. And, and they are immediately furious. They're like, what do you mean I, you have to stop? So yeah. It's, yeah. it's like so important in that, in that situation, because it, you know, at that point, your preparation and your speed is like a direct barrier to somebody's creativity coming out. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if definitely some people forget lyrics or melodies so fast and like if mm. if they can't put it Absolutely. in the box, then like they're going to be so pissed that, that it's gone in, <laughs> in five minutes. And I've, I've been there. I'm sure you've been there once or twice. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, not not really forgetting what they were doing, but just, you know, just feeling you know when you do something and you feel aware that everyone is waiting for you. That's the worst. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the worst feeling. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's, <clears throat> the, yeah. The the pop session thing it like really is about you know just 
as prepared as you possibly can be having all of your vocal stacks and then getting the artist like when you when you're a songwriter and you can get the artist in the room you've got to get that vocal at the end of the day even if you guys didn't write a bridge or the second verses this mm -hmm. just get get that artist vocal on there because that's what the a and r and the manager people that's what they're going to love they're going to they're going to mm -hmm. be able to hear it so much better when the artist is on it and it's not like the demo yeah. singer that came a couple days later that just it never clicks the same way yeah right. i mean usually i never really had that because fraser doesn't really work like that so it was always writing with the artists oh nice maybe there was a maybe there was a, a top liner or someone else as well in the room yeah but it was always with with an artist in there because it's, it's the way he works he's more he's not about or oh, i'll make a song and then we'll, we'll give it to someone or I mean, he did it. He did that maybe a couple of times early on in his career, but but the ones like all the projects that we worked on together, the artist was in the room. So that's great. Big difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hey, have you been in a lot of situations where the artist was able to come back and recut the vocal after like living with the song for a month? Is it is it always the demo magic, or sometimes do they live with it and beat it? It honestly rarely, rarely happens. <laughs> and that's why I always pushed to, you know, because I knew, because in my head at the beginning when we started working together, I'm like, oh, well, this is the demo. This is the demo. Cool. Yeah. But then I realized, no, actually, this is not the demo. This is what's going to make the final record. And it was not only for vocals, for parts, for, for, for other, you know, pianos and, and all that. So, so I was like, you know what, instead of doing an okay job the first time and having to redo it later again, let's do it properly the first time around. And obviously re-record it if we have to change, if they had to change lyrics or had to change melodies or whatever, of course. Right. But if it was, if they were like super happy with the song and we did a, a really good vocal at the end of the day on the proper mic, well recorded, they, they didn't need to come back. Yeah. So there, like, and there is an energy there. Where like when you, you're like in it, like you've been like thinking about that chorus all day and humming mm. that chorus all day. When they, when you go in the booth and finally get to sing it, like it's got, it's got something that it loses later sometimes. So yeah, a lot of artists say that, that they don't have the same feeling anymore. If they come back to re-record it sometimes months later, they're like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not in the same frame of mind anymore i'm not in the so sometimes it's different and it's also fine because it's just a different way of singing but sometimes like yeah i feel like what we had was was the one and as an engineer i was happy i was like yes we can use that because it's not there's nothing sonically wrong that prevents <laughs> us to use that right <laughs> you know so obviously there's no right or wrong but I just never wanted to have something and say, oh, well, it's been really badly recorded, so we actually can't use it. Yeah. <laughs> and that never, that never happened. So that's good. Yay. I, I have found some, I found myself in some funny situations on, on like the writing sessions where you just capture whatever it is, acoustic guitar, there's like some noise, nobody wants to look for the noise. And then like, you know, a couple of weeks later, somebody's like, I need you to send these files to so-and-so mixer. And I was like, oh, I need to fix this. Like, nobody can know mm. what this actually sounds like. <laughs> I can't, I can't let this person solo yeah. this file. They'll, they'll hate me. 
So how long or are you are you still working with Fraser or are you? Um, no, not since the beginning of last year. OK, so now you're fully freelance. You are you are your own mm -hmm. your own boss. Yeah. How's that? I mean, it's been it's been amazing. Oh, even though like the, the time with Fraser was so great and he actually uh, um, sort of moved studios and we built up together his new studio and it was like all custom and everything. And it was such a great like um, partnership in working together. And I learned so much. I felt like I wanted to, because I, I started mixing and mastering with him, but obviously we, we were not doing that seven days, like five days a week. We were still doing a lot of recording and he was doing a lot of writing as well. So I wanted to, to give the mixing and mastering like a proper, a proper go. And I was like, okay, I want to see if I can, if I, because I really enjoy it as well. So I wanted to, to see if I can do that and get to the level that I, that I want to be as a mixer. So yeah, that's how, that's how it went. And early on, I got uh, management as well. And that really, that really helped, I think, getting, because I was already in the industry, but more known as a recording engineer. Yeah. I wasn't really known as a mixer. And I think at the beginning, it was a bit difficult finding artists who wanted me to mix their records. <laughs> so, <coughs> so, um, so having management really helped sort of getting into that circle of, because I'm sure it's the same in in LA as well. Yeah, you've got like a, a pool of of people that you know are known in in the industry and that labels and the sort of the, the go tos if you want. So I wanted to be part of that 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 pool of of mixers and and I feel like without management it would have been really difficult because I'm not I'm not very good at hustling and. I don't really like it either. So I don't, I don't really like to, to be like, okay, well tell me why you're great and tell me what you, we should give this to you. It's yeah. really like, it's really awkward. It's so, <laughs> so awkward. So having, having managers is, is just the best and, and we, we really get along really well. And I knew one of them before because we worked together before as well. So really it was like a really a perfect, perfect match. And I think that's really important as well that you have a team of the, the people that you work with as a team so you are on the same page and on the same it feels like they're, they're quite young and it feels like we're on the same sort of page as you know as careers and they're really hungry as well and they want to get into like cool projects and and i feel like it's it's really helped me in getting more artists to come to me for mixing and yeah. because of the because of what i did with Stormzy and Dave, oh, I had a bit of a um, sort of a name in that lane, in that genre. But I said to them, I don't want to be doing only grime and hip hop. I want to mix pop records. I want to mix indie stuff. I want to still be able to 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 mix a wide, you know, range of music because that's I. I did a lot of urban and hip hop when I was working with Fraser, but before that, I, it was like a lot of pop, a lot of bands, and I like the diversity. And I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be doing the same thing all the time. So, and I think that worked. So far, it actually worked really well. 
That's awesome. When you when you were looking for a manager, or maybe they were coming to you, I guess that's my question for you is, were you actively looking for a manager at the time, or or did you have people starting to court you because of the records you've been working on? No one courts you in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go and... And yeah, no, it actually, it was a weird, really weird coincidence. I reached out to a couple of people that I knew and this, this, this guy that I, that I, that I worked with before reached out to me saying, oh, do you know any, do you know any mixers that need management? And I was like, are you, did, did you know that I was looking? He was like, oh, are you? It was like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, I'm looking for management. He was like, oh, perfect. So that that worked out that way and he didn't know that I was looking that that's um, well can I ask you a question did he think of you yeah. as a recording engineer and not a mixer um yeah 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 and he I, d- I don't know if he knew that I because we 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 met through Fraser because he was working on Fraser's team as an A&R when I started so he didn't even know that I was on my own again and he was like oh you're not working with Fraser anymore and I was like no no I'm just want to do my own thing and he was like oh that's that's perfect so he's actually an he's not well he manages um I think a couple of artists and and a producer and me cool but his full-time job is he's an A&R so that works really well and because obviously A&R exists full-time job so he has another person another guy so there's two of them and and they're both A&Rs so one is at uh, Warner's and one's at Sony, Great. so it's it it just worked wonderfully for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good that's a good combo. Well, the reason I asked if if he thought of you as a as a recording engineer or mixer is is I found through all my time doing pop songwriting sessions because that's basically what like ten years of my career was was doing songwriting sessions, mm-hmm. and uh, that's like what everybody thought that was like the only thing I did even like writers and sessions would be like oh um you don't mix do you and I'm like I'm mixing right now we're doing a rough mix right now like we're 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 mixing right now <laughs> but um I found that like to mm-hmm. to kind of transition my personal experiences my transition into to mixing full time is I just had to actively like you you just have to tell everybody that hey I'm not really doing your sessions anymore I will for some of my clients but like if the phone yeah. rings and they're like, hey, can you do a two-hour vocal session? I'm saying it's going to be a no. <laughs> mm. You know, it's like well, the focus has changed. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the same for me. I still had some regular artists coming to me say, oh, can you do, can you do some recording for us? And I did, I did a couple of, of them, but I was like, I, I really want to be focusing on mixing now. And yeah, I think the, the management sort of really pushed that across for for artists and labels and they were like okay well she's after after you turn a few down they're like okay well she's not doing recording anymore yeah (laughs) yeah they they get it can we talk mixing and mastering a little bit i know that you do both yeah Mm -hmm. do you do them together do you master things you mix yes you do is it something you like to do or is it something you do because people are like hey we need both i think it's um it's a tricky one because at the I think at the beginning, it came from maybe a lack of time for the for a specific record to get mixed and get mastered by someone else. Mm, right. Because as you know, now also every everyone seemed to be on a crazy deadline. 
I don't know if you noticed that, probably. <laughs> even worse <laughs> at, like, at the end of COVID. It's even shorter, the deadlines. It's everything needs to be done yesterday. And obviously, when you're mixing, if you're sending the, the masters to somebody else, th there's always going to be, okay, well, we need to book the mastering engineer. We need to book the studio, see when that person is available and hear the masters back and approve them and, and all that those things. And in some cases, there wasn't time for that. So obviously I understand what mastering is and and also with with mixing you still have to provide a mastered mix for people to approve. Right. For you know label and artists because you're not you're not sending a unlimited unmastered mix for approval because you're not gonna get approved. Because they you know, when they get a mix back, they're listening against other mixes, other tracks are already out and they've been mastered. Yeah. So I, I, I learned that pretty early on that you need to have some sort of mastering on your mix to send that to send that to be to be approved. You can send an unlimited one as well if you wish, but you need to have that some sort of mastering going on. And so, so I knew obviously what, I, I need to do in order to master the tracks. Obviously, mastering is there's there's a lot more things that it's not only limiting a track. Obviously, there's there's a lot of things that a mastering engineer does, and um, especially on a, 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 an, an actual album. Oh yeah, an actual album that's maybe mixed by different people, and so so there's a lot there's a lot going on, and I feel like for me, mastering my own my own mixes when it's like single tracks, it's usually pretty easy because I, I have that into my chains and when I send it, it's mastered. And so usually if they're happy with the mix and they're like, can you master it as well? Either I just, if I'm happy, I just leave it as it is or and limited and everything. And, and if not, I just maybe compare it with a few different things and I slightly touch up uh, sort of my, my master bus, but if it's a full record, if it's a full album, I usually would prefer if if I mix mix it all, I would prefer someone to take it on mm. because it's a lot, and I feel you sort of lose objectivity a little bit, and having someone someone else listening as as the whole, I think is beneficial to sort of spot maybe what needs to be slightly corrected or slightly adjusted and. And and also, mastering engineers are putting they, their own taste and their own musicality and their own stamp on the track as well. So it's also like another layer of you know creativity added to it. So I I love doing it, and and if people want me to to do it, then I can. But also, I'm quite happy to sort of leave it to someone else to do it. And you know, I always send my mastered mix to the mastering engineer so they so they can hear how I'm hearing it. Mm. And most of the time, like I'm super happy with the masters. There's there's been a couple of times where it's not quite right, but then you have a discussion with the mastering engineer and they correct it and that's you know. Yeah. That's all good. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I'm uh, I try to shy away from mastering my own mixes just because like you said, objectivity is hard. But when you are up against that deadline, like, you know, we've all learned how to to get it, you know, 
to the right volume and, and kind of hit the main points that are expected. But uh, yeah, I started doing the same thing as well as sending my limited master version, my unlimited to, to uh, somebody else and letting them do their thing. But mm. I mean, I, um, I had someone in some, um, I don't know why they, some, it was like expected that the mix would be sort of mastered. And he was like, well, this is you, what you're sending is the final final thing and I was like oh are you not you know mastering it and I was like, oh we're not really we don't really see the point of it so <laughs> I was like all right so I feel like there's still because it's mastering has been referred as the dark art for so many years yeah that maybe there's not enough awareness of why mastering is important and what it does and and everything so sometimes I feel like not not everyone not not the engineers obviously, but the maybe the labels and and in the sort of more in the offices and stuff that don't really know what's happening. So maybe there's a bit more of I don't know awareness that needs to be raised about why why mastering is important and and it's a crucial step into making a record. Oh, totally. Well, I think actually I never thought about it until you said it, but the fact that like it really is kind of the the dark arts, I don't think really helps it to like the, the uninformed, you know, artist who's mm -hmm. just creatively focused. Yeah. They don't understand Definitely. like what it's going to bring to them, but they know that it's yeah. usually fairly expensive. And so <laughs> you're just going to like, <laughs> Not okay. as expensive as mixing though. Yes, yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah. Mm. Um, oh, I have to ask, this is, I guess a little yeah. bit more for a U.S. audience than, you know, anybody over in the UK that is, that knows you. Breakthrough Engineer of the Year versus Recording Engineer of the Year. Like, what makes it breakthrough? Because it, you were new. It's like best new artist type yeah. thing. Yeah, that's that's a similar similar thing. So breakthrough is usually when you um, you know you had you worked on like really good records and you've been part of the the recording for the for the full album and and stuff. And then once you obviously get breakthrough once. You can't get it again because you already broke through. You know, broke through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so the next, the sort of the next step up is the the recording engineer of the year. So that sort of solidify your your sort of reputation as a recording engineer. Let's say. Okay, so like, I guess my my confusion because engineering is like such a long career. Like I, I've been over here working for fifteen years. Can I can I win breakthrough engineer in from the MPG or, or I'm just, yeah. I, well, then once you, yeah. once you win that, then, then you can never have that one again. So it doesn't matter how long you've been no. working. It's yeah. just the first time no. you're honored. It's you're honored with that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you could, you could, I mean, I can't remember how many years, I think I was uh, like a good six or seven years in yeah. when I got the, the breakthrough one and sort of like about eight, eight or nine years when I got the, the engineering one so you know it takes like you say it takes a long a really long time to get there but but then again it doesn't mean when you have the recording engineer of the year is you know there's, there's still i feel like there's still so much that you have to learn and you have to you know it's it's it's, it's a nice recognition of your work but it doesn't mean that you know it all <laughs> <laughs> totally Obviously. and is it it's more it's more specific to a single project or are they looking at like that year of your career? Yeah. So they're looking at the, the, the overall year. 
So you have to present uh, sort of records that you worked on during that that year. And so the the, the breakthrough one was two albums was uh, a Kano album, which is also a, a, a rapper and um, a Gavin James album, which is a really sort of opposite sort of indie, quite band-like album. And the, the year after was for the Stormzy first album and the London Grammar's second album. Cool. That's awesome. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe it's just the outsider's perspective that engineers are getting a little bit more recognition like in this you, uh, over there than over here where it's just, you know, it, I feel like engineers is the first credit lobbed off. Like, Hey, we need to, we need to remove a line. Okay. We'll, we'll keep producer and mixer and mastering engineer. What's this engineer? Let's okay. Let's cut that off and then we'll move <laughs> on from there. But, uh, so I think that's, I think it's dope. I think it's awesome. Congrats on, on winning. Thank you. you. Know, both Thank of those. You so much. I, I think you're right. I think there's because of the, the music producers guild, I think there's, there's a, they're trying to get a bit more recognition for engineers, and there's a there's a breakthrough producer as well. That now there's a there's a songwriter award as well. I mean, there's cool. quite a few. There's a, the obviously mastering and uh, engineer of the year, mixer engineer of the year. So there's quite a lot of technical awards, and I think it's quite nice to to, to have those technical ones to to show the work of people behind the scenes. Yeah, because it takes all of us to to make records and they also they're also trying to get um we, we actually had a meeting a few months ago about credits and to, to sort of try to find a a way that no one gets forgotten because obviously now sessions are going from once one song can travel in so many different studios yeah that there's so many different people working on it and it's it's like you say it's really easy to to not be credited on on things it is uh, just just because there's so many people that maybe be like you were not logged in into the into the system when they did the label copy and i think they they're trying to change that and i think it's great because when you when you start as an assistant engineer a credit is is like everything because everything. it's like oh well i've worked on this and that, and, and that's how you you can progress and, and show what you've done to, to people to get more work. And and it's really like hard when you say, oh, I've worked on this, but you look at the credits and you're not in there. It's like, yeah. oh, right. Well, yeah. they're going to think I'm a liar then. <laughs> I know. I know. It's... You know, it's, it's, it's quite, so I feel, I feel like they, they're really trying, I don't know how it is in the U S but they're really trying over here to, to do that properly. And, when when I was working with Fraser as well, I was doing the all the, the all the tracks that he was writing or producing. I was doing all the label copies, and I was always making sure that everyone was credited. And it was always quite long. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. there was like a lot of people on there, but still, you know, everyone needs to be needs to be credited. I couldn't agree more. I don't remember if if I I told you that's like one of my things that I want to talk about this year. So it, mm -hmm. it's funny that. We, we went down this road. Maybe I'll, I'll bug you. You can maybe connect me with some people over at the Music Producers Guild. But like over here, it's it's pretty it's pretty disorganized over here too. And I just feel like there's a lot of breakdown points where it's, you know, the artist might forget to tell the manager that they did vocals over here for one day and it wasn't the engineer that did vocals on the other two days or mm -hmm. the manager has the list of people that he booked the sessions for but then forgot that 
you know, the drummer did it yeah. at his own studio and or whatever it is. And then that makes it to the label copy and some intern maybe misses one email that has two people in it. And it's it's just like I feel like incrementally, like along the way, mm. e even just accidentally, like people get lost in, in the fray. It's just yeah. really tough. Um, and, it, yeah. and for people that are building careers, like when you're early on, it's just, you know, that's like where you and I probably learned who was cool is like when I would get a CD and look at it. I'm like yeah, looking yeah. through and I'm like, oh, Rick Rubin again. I should look at Rick Rubin. He's on all these CDs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, so but yeah, that's yeah, that's cool. That's that's. I'm glad you I guys think, are working I on that. I think it was, yeah, I think it was easier before because maybe there was a bit less people involved. And now, like you say, it goes to one studio, we do vocals here, then then we redo vocals over there and then we do pianos over here and then we do it's it's there's so much yeah there there is so much that's not done in the same place by the same people that it's really hard to keep track and they're trying to find a way to do that which is a really which is a real head scratcher because it's how how to get all this logged in somewhere is actually quite difficult oh yeah it's not an easy task which is why i'm mm. sure people are scared to take it on <laughs> uh, but uh, that's cool. I'm glad. I'm glad we got to talk credits. Um, mm. So I have two questions that I close every show with that I'm going to throw at you. The first yeah. one being: Is there any point in your career that you decided to redefine what success meant to you? Um. Yes, I feel like the obviously having discs and awards and everything is is great, and it really. Like, I, it really means a lot when you get them as well, I feel. But for me, the real sort of success is seeing someone sustaining a career for 40 years. Yeah. Because it's quite, I feel like it's quite a, even more so for writers and producers, but but for, for engineers and mixers as well, it's competitive. It's really what can be in for a few years can be really out and dated, you know, a few years later. And a lot of the techniques change, the, 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 the taste of of music and, and what what is current changes as well. And I feel you always have to be on top of that and always have to reinvent yourself a bit in a way. And for me success is being able to to do that to, to always year on to be like oh this is to, people coming back to me and being wanted to still work with me and people being really happy with the mixes that I'm sending back and be able to sustain it for for a long long time and that I feel that's that's really difficult oh yeah that's really difficult yeah, you said it, but reinvention is, there's like layers of reinvention and, you know, staying relevant. Um, because, mm. yeah, people come up, they do different things, then you have to reverse engineer that, figure out how that fits into your thing. Like, you know, it's it's uh, it's tough to have a long, you know, 40 plus year career. Yeah, and I'm looking so. at some mixes that obviously 20 years ago, they were all mixing on analog and you know, the, the times for mixes were a lot longer, so they had time to recall and everything. And now some really in-demand mixes, they have to do three songs a day. How could they do that on on, on an SSL or 
or destinies to be recalled. I mean, so so they had to change. They had to adapt and they had to change the way they work, but still keep their sound and keep the, keep, you know, what makes them, uh, you know, amazing. And, and, and that's really hard to do because it's everything that you know and you've learned is sort of thrown and you have to learn something, something new and a new way of working. And the, some, some mixes, they had like really great peaks in like in the eighties or something. And then when sort of like the digital, more digital Pro Tools or in the box mixes came, they were like, mm. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't, they were not so hot anymore. <laughs> and then now, now they, they completely understood it and reworked their, their workflow and, and now they're back at their peak again. And that's really amazing to see. No, it's, yeah, it, it is impressive. And it's also, you know, it's, it can be a gut punch to have to like take a step back and be like, I'm not as awesome as I was 10 years ago. Like, how can I get awesome again? And then, and yeah. then you bounce back and you do it is almost more impressive than doing it the first time. You're like, yeah, I can do this mm. again. So I think that's, I think that's yeah. an awesome definition of success because it's, it's going to take reinvention to sustain like that. That's good. Mm. I like it. I like mm -hmm. it. Um, <laughs> and the final question, what right now is your biggest goal that you can share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? I think my, I mean, it kind of ties in with what I've said on the previous question is that I still, I'm, I'm very, even though I've been sort of doing this for about 10 years or so, I'm still very new to, to the whole industry and I want to get better and I want to get, you know, I want to be one of those top, top mixers in hopefully in the UK. <laughs> Even in the world. Yeah, make it the no. world. Um, but, you know, to be one of those established name, and that's that's my goal. Awesome. And so what I'm doing to get closer to that is just always sort of questioning if what I'm doing is good enough, always referencing a lot to what those, you know, big big mixes that I admire and like the, their sound what are they doing, referencing tracks. And sometimes it's, it's really, there, there's been times where I'm, I was mixing something and I was referencing with, with one track, like a recent track that came out. And I was like, this is, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I don't know what to do because I'm so far from that. I'm so far from being that, that good. It was like, oh, well. And I think I stopped working that day. I was like, bloody hell <laughs> I've got so I've got so much to learn and so much skill I think to develop and I think keep learning looking for resources online you know watching videos reading reading up I think it's really really important and and sometimes I watch some like mixing you know videos and stuff and most of it I'm like okay well nothing new we've seen that and stuff but then you sort of digest it a bit and then you say, oh, okay, well, maybe if you just pick one thing of like the, the whole, I don't know, hour or so that you watched, then and you implement that and then maybe the next thing that I read or something and then I'll be like, oh, well, maybe I could try that. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But you sort of pick up little things and so that's the what I'm trying to do when I have time. That's awesome. <laughs> to, that's awesome. To sort of to get to get better 
Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is, you've reached a point in your career where you can watch one of those videos and and you can steal something and flip it to your own way. You're like, ah, oh, I've never approached mm-hmm. it that way. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna try exactly. that plugin yeah. that way because I've never tried that plugin that way. Mm-hmm. So I think it it is cool when you when you you know ten years in, ten years of experience, you have a different perspective on like watching somebody work. You're like, ah, oh, hmm, interesting. But mm-hmm. uh, I I wanted to ask you always talking about like you know, wanting to make sure that every one of your mixes is better. Do you ever feel like you're up against like the perfectionism like wall? Like, do you ever feel like you just have to stop on a mix or that you're just striving for like, because perfectionism is, it's like, you know, it's almost a negative thing to go yeah. after. It's at some point it becomes you know, a spiral, but. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two things. I think there's perfectionism when you sort of endless tweaking things. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't really know what you're aiming towards. You don't really know what you want to get. So you're sort of like, oh, I tweak a bit of this, tweak a bit of that, and then you just tweak a mix for two days. And I feel like that's a bit dangerous. But on the sort of flip side, there's the perfectionism of wanting to to have a better product. And sometimes the, the sort of facing the hard truth of, well, this is not, like I know people say oh it's not it's not good to compare yourself to others it's not really comparing but it's just referencing what you know is is working what you know is good and then you know facing the truth well what I'm doing now is actually not that as good so I need to keep working on it but uh, I I agree with you that some at some point you have to stop you know when Someone asked me, when does a mix end? <laughs> and I feel like if you don't have a deadline, you know, it's, it, I think it's the same for everyone, for writers, producers, everyone. If you don't have a deadline, you're going to endlessly work on something oh, yeah. because there's always going to be, there's always going to be things to try and, and things. So, so I think having a deadline really help. Yeah. Having an idea of what you want to achieve and you know, having a, a clear thing of what, what you want to, to achieve, I think is really important. And that's usually when you feel like you've, you've done that, then like, okay, well, I think I'm in a good place now. And let's send that to the label and the artist and see what they say. Yeah. That's usually when it's, you know, when the, the sort of mixing process stops. And then obviously if they come back and they have notes, then you do the, do the notes, but the, the sort of, stylistic and and the actual mix is finished the rest is just little adjustments well i thought of this while you were talking about like you know striving for like career perfection it's like i feel like you could say that perfectionism is acceptable to strive for like in the grand scheme of a career because like i'm a firm believer like if you shoot for you know like if i shoot for the moon i'm gonna make it to like you know, the upper atmosphere, like I may not make it to the moon before I die, (laughs) right? But I'm going to get, I'm going to get halfway there. Right. So it's like, if you're striving for perfectionism overall, like you can be amazing at the end, but I think Mm. perfectionism on like a project by project basis or an individual song basis is a little poisonous, but as like a, Mm. um, Mm. as a moonshot target, I think it's maybe, maybe a pretty interesting concept. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that, that what they do is perfect. It's just, it's been it's been shown that it, it works and it's also what I personally like. Maybe yeah. someone's well, I don't like this mix, I don't like this 
this person and what you know it's not my style it's very you know based on your taste as well yeah Amazing. Awesome. Well, I know you have to get back to work. So this has been a, mm -hmm. a great hang. Do you want to share with people where they can find you or your manager, where, wherever they should reach out if they, if they want to work together, if they want to chat, whatever. So I've got a website. It's manongrungy.com. And so they can contact me on there. There's a little boxing where you can message or on Instagram. I think, I think I'm grungymanon on Instagram. So at I'm not really on Twitter or Facebook and let alone Snap or TikTok and all that. <laughs> I'm too old for this. So <laughs> so your best bet is the, is the website and Instagram. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is super enjoyable. I hope you have a, an, an excellent evening. You, well, you, have, you enjoy your day because yeah. it's beginning of the day for you. That's right. <laughs> thank you so much. So that's it for episode 55. Thanks to Manon for taking the time to chat. Everybody, please go check out her work and find her on the internet. She's super awesome. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know somebody else that might get value out of it, please share it with them. Also, if you haven't left a review for the show yet, please consider taking one minute out of your day to do that over on Apple Podcasts, please. And don't forget to join us over at the Complete Producer Network. There is a ton of great conversations going on over there. I'm about to go there myself right now. So on that note, I will see y'all next time.